Good to see y'all in the house of the Lord. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, turn to the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we got some scattered around. You're more than welcome to use. The 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, while you're turning there, let me just say a little bit about this 27th chapter because it is kind of the climax of God's love and God's mercy. On that day that we're going to read about here in a minute, no one ever loved so much. No one sacrificed so much. No one accomplished such a great a task that particular day. What happened on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem forever changed history. Before the cross, you remember that Jesus had a earthly ministry. You know, Jesus lived about 33 years before he was crucified. And when Jesus started his ministry, he cured, the, or when he started his ministry, he, he cured the sick. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He taught God's love. He loved the, the unlovely. He sought the lost. You know, Jesus didn't hang out with the pillars and the scholars of the community. He hung out with sinners. He, he hung out with, you might say, some of the worst of the worst. But after Jesus died on that cross, then he commissioned the church to preach the gospel, to seek the lost, to minister to the wounded and the dying and the sick. And also being in constant prayer. And now it was the church's commission to love the unlovely. So I want you to think about this. On that day, four nails forever changed how God ministered to a lost and dying world. As Jesus' earthly ministry closed, it was shut down. Each nail driven in that cross beckons us to take up where he left off. I want you to look in that 27th chapter of Matthew with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. This is going to be kind of long, so y'all bear with me. Matthew 27, 27. Y'all there? Amen? Amen. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into common hall, or the governor's headquarters, and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, or cohort of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, or twisted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and they took the reed, and they smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment or own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. 
And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simeon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar or sour wine to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments or divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture or my clothing did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there or guarded him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then were there two robbers or thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him or blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it up, buildest it in three days, save thyself. If I be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabakadun. I didn't probably say that right, but look right below it. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood before when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let it be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. I want you to keep your Bibles open. This is one of those sermons you may want to get a pen and paper out and jot down uh, some notes. There's going to be a uh, lot of uh, scripture thrown at you today, so you may want to jot them down so you can look at them later. Now, the first point, let me visit with you today about the impact of the four nails. The first point that I want you to say, we are or to see, is that we are called to be Jesus' hands. Now, when they crucified Jesus, the Bible tells us that they took nails and they spread his arms out and they drove nails in his hands or maybe in his wrist. We could argue about that all day. But these nails restrained the hands of Jesus' ministry. These nails pierced into the hands of the one who had healed lepers, the one who had given sight to the blind, the one that was giving strength to the lame. 
We're talking about the same guy that provided food with just a couple of loaves and a few fish to thousands of people. And, and now he is being nailed to a criminal's cross. I want you to hear this. In his book called Grace for the Moment, Max Lucado wrote it this way. He said, when, his, when human hands fastened divine hands to the cross with spikes, it wasn't the soldiers who held the hands of Jesus steady. It was God who held them steady. You see, these same hands that formed the oceans and these same hands that built mountains, these were the same hands that designed the dawn that orchestrate the clouds and, and crafted the clouds that we see. These are the same hands that blueprinted an incredible plan, not only for my life, but for each one of y'all's lives as well. So, with that in thought, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 2, that the resurrection Jesus now sets in glory. You know, since he is not physically here anymore to, to spread the gospel, to do his ministry, how in the world is that work going to continue on? How is that work going to be done? Through us. That's how it's going to be done. It said he commissioned the church who is the church? The body of believers. It is our job now to go with that ministry, to pick up the torch and carry it on. We need to touch the sick. We need to touch the hurting, the dying. You know, we need to beckon the little children to come to him. We need to restore hope to the hopeless. You know, when I mentioned that Hebrews 12, 2, in other words, what I'm telling you here, since we are now uh, uh, commissioned to take that ministry and go with it, that tells me that the Christian life involves hard work. It requires us to give up whatever endangers our relationship with God, to run with endurance to struggle against sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me interject something here right quick. I want you to understand something about Jesus when he came from heaven. Jesus existed in heaven before he ever came down here. But the Bible says that he was born as a human being and, and just like you and I, and let me tell you something. He lived on this earth just like you and I do. He goes through and went through everything that you and I go through on a daily basis. But the thing about it was he did it perfectly. He did it without sin. Why did he do that? To show us that it could be done. Now, you may be sitting there saying, now, Pastor, you just hang on a minute, boy. It's pretty hard. You're, you're trying to say that I can do what Jesus did. I'm telling you through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do anything. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about that 
in weeks past. You know, sometimes we want to underestimate God's ability. Here's what I want you to understand. To live effectively, folks, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we stumble when we look away from him and we start staring at ourselves and start fretting about the circumstances surrounding us. Folks, we're running for Christ. We're not running for ourselves. So we must always keep him in sight. Always be relying on him. Our hands are now called to do that work. Our hands are now called to the work of the ministry. You know, and, and for far too long, far too long, many thought following Jesus simply meant dressing up on Sunday and sitting through a worship service, but Christ calls us to so much more than that. He calls us to roll up our sleeves and do the dirty work of the ministry. Lead, well, we don't have stained glass windows in this church, but if we did, well, we do. We got one up yonder. But I would tell you to leave the stained glass windows of this auditorium and start touching and reaching out to stained lives. That's what we need to do. Get out of our comfort zone and lovingly share the message of hope. You know, very few people, especially unchurched people, unsaved people, care about this church's history. They care very little about how well we sing. They don't care who makes the best pie or cake or cookies when we're going to have dinner on the ground. They are waiting to see if our walks matches up with our talk. They are waiting to see if, 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 <coughs> if we, we, when we sing these hymns about God's love and God's mercy, is it going to leave the pews and is it going to reach out yonder? Or they're, they're wanting to see if Jesus' love will be put into action. Then, and only then, are they going to set up and take notice what's going on. They're going to take notice of the risen Savior. So, we need to ask ourselves a question at this time. And it's a very pertinent question. And that question is, when was the last time our hands did the work of Jesus? Now, I want you to think about that. Now, you may be sitting there going, well, you know, Pastor, I help my family all the time. That's well and fine. We need to help our family. But here's my question. When was the last time that you witnessed to someone that is unsaved? When is the last time that you ministered to someone that is unsaved or needy or hurting? This week, before we gather again next week, I challenge you, each and every one of you, to reach out to someone that you know needs Jesus Christ in their lives. Now the next point that I want you to see today is that we are to be Jesus' feet. The third nail in the cross, you remember, went through both of Jesus' feet. Now I want you to think about this. 
One nail driven through those two feet of Jesus stopped his trek of service. The Bible tells us in Luke 19 and 10, Jesus said that he came to save and to seek the lost. The Bible tells us in Matthew 6, 24, he calls us now to be his feet and he clearly teaches us there the responsibility and the privilege of following in his footsteps. You know, and if you look in Matthew there in 16, 24 and 25, I think it's where Jesus said that we have to take up our cross and follow him daily. You see, daily we have to decide if we're going to take up our cross and follow Jesus and be in his will or are we going to follow the way of the world and be in its will. So when Jesus used this picture of his followers taking up the cross, and following him, the disciples knew what that meant. You see, just like Jesus, crucifixion was a very common Roman method of execution in this time that we're talking about. That's why condemned criminals faced was, ex was execution. And they were forced to carry their own cross to where they were going to be executed. Well, following Jesus, what that means is total commitment. It, it meant a true commitment. The risk of death. There's no turning back, folks. Real discipleship implies real commitment. In other words, it takes a certain amount of de dedication, pledging our whole existence to his service. You see, if we try to protect ourselves because we, we're worried that we're going to suffer, that we're going to, to have to go through pain, if we try to try to protect ourselves from the suffering that God has planned for us, we begin to die spiritually. We begin to die emotionally, and we turn inward, and we lose our intended purpose. It's only when we give our life in service to Christ that we discover our real purpose for living. May I remind you, Christ expects his followers to travel. Let me give you four examples. The Bible tells us in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that we are to go to all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. Acts 1, 8 says, from wherever we are to the ends of the earth. 1 Peter 2, 20, 21 says, in his steps. We need to follow in his steps, ready and willing to endure suffering for his sake. And lastly, Romans 10, 15, Paul declared that Christians carrying the gospel have beautiful feet. Where have your feet taken you as far as the kingdom of God? We need to know that our responsibility is to follow Jesus. Going where Jesus wants us to go. Doing what Jesus wants us to do. Have your feet taken you to that neighbor that you know that's not saved? To the sick? To those seeking answers? Let me tell you something you may not know. There was a fellow by the name of George Barton. He conducted a nationwide poll and he discovered that 67%, I do the math for you, that's two-thirds, Two-thirds of the unchurched people, you know what they said, the reason why they don't go to church? 
nobody ever invited them. You think about that. 67%, two-thirds, because no one simply said, hey, come on up there and listen to that crazy country preacher we got. You might learn something. Billy Graham told this story. Billy Graham was flying on a jet in the continent of Africa, flying from one city to another. And he began to share his faith with some reporters that were traveling with him. And the jet got into a bad storm and you know, it, it was kind of coincidental because nobody, these reporters really didn't want to listen to what Billy Graham had to say. And they got in this bad storm and the, the, the jet started to buck and pitch and bounce up and down. And everybody was concerned, worried. They finally came through it. And one of the reporters came back and asked Mr. Graham, he said, uh, what were you saying about life after death? You see, sometimes it takes a very dramatic experience to wake us up. If Jesus is your Lord, you are called to be his feet. Now the third thing, my third point today. We are called to proclaim Jesus Christ. Where was that fourth nail in the cross? Head. We just read it, folks. Over his head. Verse 37. What did it say? They put a sign above him. It took four nails. You see, it was kind of a cruel joke. It, it was one nail that posted that sign of Jesus' death. If you look in John's Gospel, the 19th chapter, verse 22, you see that John tells us that that sign was written in Greek, in Hebrew, and in Latin. You know why? So that everybody could read it. Everyone could read it. When the chief priests, they started complaining to Pilate that, uh, uh, about the sign. And you know what Pilate said? He says, what I have written, I have written. How ironic. How ironic. Pilate's statement was absolutely true. Jesus is king. He should have been born in a palace, not in a stable. He deserved a throne instead of a cross. He deserved not to be hung where he was. We're talking about the immortal one hung on the cross, bearing it all in the flesh without any clothes. Jesus is not simply a king. Jesus is the king. Let's not be fickle like the crowds were that first Easter Sunday. It is relatively easy to welcome Jesus as king Sunday evening sitting in church. But disavowing him later through the week, ladies and gentlemen, just crucifies him all over again. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us that in Hebrews 6. 6. 
Yeah, that sign said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. But that should be torn down from that cross. And it should be nailed to each one of our hearts. I want to quote Max Lucado again in his book, He Chose the Nails. This is what he said, and I want you to think about this. He starts off saying, the list of our weaknesses. I want you to think about the list. That if you had to write your weaknesses down, what would you put on that list? My next question is, how would you feel if they were posted high so that everyone could read them, including Jesus himself? Just like they put that sign over his head. Yeah, we could all list a bunch of failures, couldn't we? And here's the thing. Jesus has chronicled every one of them. Every one of your short, shortcomings. And yes, that list has been made public. But you see, you've never seen it. I've never seen it. You haven't seen my list. I haven't seen your list. Why? Let me take you to this place called Calvary. This hill called Calvary where Christ died on that cross. You see... The sins are hidden. Those at the top are hidden by his hands. Those further down the list are covered by his blood. Your sins have been blotted out by Jesus Christ. Max went on to say this. God says, you wonder how long my love will last? You find the, heel on, you find the answer to that on the hill where that splintered cross was. You see, you look at Jesus, you picture Jesus saying on your cross, and you hear God saying, that's me you see up there on that cross. That's me, your maker. That's me, your God, nailed and bleeding and stabbed, covered in spit and sin stoked. That's your sins I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That is my place, not yours. Let me tell you one more story and we're going to wrap this up. A bunch of missionaries went to a foreign land where there was a tribe of people. Very few outsiders ever visited this place. And the folks that lived there lived in huts, just like their ancestors before them had done. And the missionaries showed up in motorized vehicles and they brought a generator and the people were infatuated by that. And the idea was to show them the life of Jesus. So they got a big sheet and they got in the biggest hut and they hung that sheet up, a white sheet, and they invited all the villagers to come and to watch this film about Jesus. And when that light lit up, they were completely awe-inspired just from the light. But then when it started showing people on that sheet, they were even more infatuated. 
And they were going through the life of Jesus. And it finally got to the scene where Jesus was hung on the cross. And one of the missionaries was speaking in their native language, telling them the story about what happened to Jesus. And one guy got up and he ran to the sheep and he says, Come down from there, Son of God. That's not your place. That's mine. I want you to think about it. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, we should be saying, come down from there, Son of God, that's not your place, that's mine. Every sin that ever has been committed, ever will be committed, is being committed, was on the mind of Jesus Christ when he was hanging on that cross. I'm here to tell you. When Jesus was on that cross, you were on his mind. But that's not the end of the story. As Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. You see, they took Jesus down from that cross and they put him in a barred tomb. And that's when everybody thought they had him just where they wanted him. All the enemies thought, well, that's the end of this Jesus guy. That's the end of this Christian thing. We're over with, said, and done. The devil thought he had won. But the Bible tells us that he didn't stay. They went out that Easter morning, and that stone was rolled away. And the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And that's what we need to understand. That he is alive. That he is well. And that we need to be running for him. I want to give you this quote real quick. Spurgeon said this. Saints running in the way of obedience to Jesus are likely to be met by Jesus. Some Christians travel to heaven so slowly that they are overtaken by follies or they're overtaken by faults, by slumber, or by Satan. But he who is, is Christ's running footman shall meet his master while he is feeding on his way. Folks, the resurrection of Jesus is not merely incredible, it is miraculous. Listen, when those two women witnessed what they witnessed when they went to that tomb, that is a pivotal point in, in human history. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He lives today. And because he lives, we can also live. You remember I told you that Jesus came down here and he lived without sin. He lived perfectly to show us that it can be done. I just read you where he has risen. He went and he, the Bible tells us that he said, I am going to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you back. He is alive. We, as his followers, need to be sharing that message of hope 
with people that do not know Jesus. My challenge to you today is take up your cross and follow Jesus and share that gospel message because now it is your responsibility. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your son, Father, that paid the ultimate sacrifice. Father, I just thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. I thank you for your son that you provided that could pay for our sins, that could give us everlasting life, Father. He is alive. He is well. And he cares about each one of us. Father, we just thank you for this service today. We thank you for the folks that are here, Father. And I just praise you for each one of them. I pray your blessing upon each one of them, Father. I just ask that you will keep us safe during this very challenging time, Father. And ask you to forgive us where we fail. In your son's name we pray. Amen.